Well, thank you, Stephen and Laura, for leading us this morning, and thank you, Pastor Jim Kilgore, for your introduction. I hope your words do not prove to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. (laughs) It is New Year's Day, after all. Happy New Year's Day to you, and undoubtedly some of you are a little bleary-eyed or awake. Passing out could, of course, happen maybe more likely uh, this morning, but I hope you're going to be with me today. Are you awake and ready to be with me here today? I imagine, oh, that's good. I imagine many of you did have a later night than normal last night, celebrating New Year's Eve. Undoubtedly, many of you stayed up late to turn our calendar over to 2012. Perhaps you were with family or friends. You watched the ball drop in Times Square. I'm sure there are many party animals here in our church who just rocked the night away. Yeah, and and (laughs) you're... You're still rocking, and a lot of you are to this service, because I tell you, there's a lot more people here than there were at the last service, uh, which, which is not surprising. So I'm glad we're a celebratory church in that regards. But it's also likely that some of you didn't do much of anything special at all last night to celebrate the coming year. That's right. Some of you went to bed at the normal time. You didn't pay much attention to New Year's Eve. Instead, you were just some old fuddy-duddy. Wasn't interested in doing anything crazy because you know what? Ah, it's another year. This seems routine. Been there, done that. Here we are again. You know what I'm talking about? This is often the case with realities or truths that we encounter over and over again. Think how big a deal Christmas morning was to you when you were five or ten years old. I remember as a child anticipating it for weeks. And and it seems that I was constantly tortured as I waited because everywhere I looked there was reminders all over the place that Christmas is coming but it's not here yet. Because the tree is up and the music is playing and we do that advent calendar thing. But the days go by so very Slowly. But as adults, we lose some of the wonder and some of the excitement of these days, don't we? Our holidays become much much less captivating than they were when we were younger. And, And the same is generally true for any experience or truth that we encounter over and over again. What used to be amazing or exciting or captivating, when it becomes routine, it loses some of its luster. And today we're going to examine a passage of scripture that contains some basic truths that many of us have heard over and over and over again. And the temptation for us as we consider these truths is to see them as routine. But they are anything but routine. The passage of scripture we're going to examine this morning has truth in it that should we should never get over. It contains a, contains a truth that should be forever surprising to us. And it describes a reality that I believe will captivate us with wonder for all of eternity. And to see this, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. My outline for this sermon is simple. We work through much of chapter 40 in Isaiah today, and through doing so, we will see two central, all-important truths. And that these two truths then lead us to an amazing, astounding surprise. So two truths followed by an incredible wonder. That's the structure of the message this morning, and I hope it will be a blessing to you. Now, before we really get into this passage, we need to set the stage uh, for this text. Let me take you a moment to remind you the, some key events in biblical history. The pinnacle of Jewish history happened during the reigns of King David and King Solomon. Uh, but after King Solomon's death, the nation of Israel had split into two kingdoms. There was the uh, northern kingdom called Israel, and then there was the southern kingdom called Judah. And these two Jewish nations, they existed side by side for couple centuries, and at times they got along, at times they were in 
conflict with one another. But sadly, really due to some poor leadership in the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, uh, the king of Assyria swept into that northern land and essentially wiped it off the map as an independent nation. And so just the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, remained. And Isaiah was a prophet to that southern kingdom. And he personally witnessed the fall of his northern neighbor. And many commentators surmise that it is in this particular context, the recent fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, that Isaiah pens chapter 40 and following. And so he is writing to a nation that has just seen its sister nation fall to a ruthless adversary. And through doing so, Isaiah prophesies that the same destiny will eventually fall the southern kingdom, his own kingdom of Judah. That someday Judah will be carried off into captivity to Babylon. And so Isaiah pens chapter 40 and following to prophesy about this coming reality and to eventually give comfort and hope to those who will someday become captives in Babylon. And that is why he begins chapter 40 in verse 1 like this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so as, as he writes, Isaiah is speaking to, trying to speak comfort to, a discouraged and fearful people who are feeling the yoke of oppression, who are wondering if God has abandoned them, who are wondering if God's promises are, are really true and, and who are perhaps doubting God's goodness and faithfulness to them. That's the background of this chapter. And having laid that, let's now dig into this really what is truly an amazing section of God's word. And and throughout this chapter, we see Isaiah describing the person of God with powerful and really just vivid imagery. Look, beginning at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and hills in a balance? Who has measured the spear of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Now the picture of God here in these verses is wonderful. In chapter, in, in verse 12, he says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and hills in a balance? Do you get the imagery here? Isaiah is describing God as huge, massive, and unimaginably powerful, especially compared to the earth itself. And let's try to put into scale just the sheer size of God that Isaiah describes here. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand? Now what he's describing there is is a picture that says that God is able to place all the waters on earth and place them into the small little cracks and crevices of his palm. Now do you know how much water there is on earth? You know, if measured in gallons, there's an estimated 326 million trillion gallons of water. How much is that? Here's a picture of Niagara Falls. Now, for those of you who've never been there, Niagara Falls is a tremendous display of power. Its sound is deafening, and just the sheer ferocity and volume of the water is rushing over these falls. It is immense. 500,000 gallons of water come over these falls every second. 500,000 gallons of water every second. Now, how much is that? 500,000 gallons is enough water to fill 10,000 bathtubs. 
So in one second, the amount of water over Niagara fills 10,000 bathtubs. Now, what if we took all the water on earth and poured it over Niagara Falls? Emptied all the oceans and poured them over Niagara. How long would that take? It would take 20 million years. That is a lot of water. Or think of it this way. Suppose you you wanted to do what the text says here that God does, that he holds all the water in the palm of his hand, all the water on earth. So in order to help you do that, you know what God did? He he put all the water on earth in one-gallon jugs, and he set them there, and you kind of took your turn, picking up a jug and putting it down, picking up a jug and putting it down. How long would it take you to pick up all those jugs of water containing all the water of the earth? It would take you about 10 trillion years. Now that is an astronomical number. It is something beyond our comprehension. And it speaks to the very size and the grandeur of God. Something that would take you 10 trillion years to do, God does in an instant. He is that powerful. He is that supreme. Or consider the next set of imagery that Isaiah provides. He says, who has marked off the heavens with a span? Now, the heavens being described here is basically the expanse of the sky itself. And the span is the length from uh, the tip of, of your thumb to the tip of your, your little finger there. That's, that's the length of a span. And the hand extended. And Isaiah is saying, hey, look up at the sky. Do you see how big and vast that is? If God stretched out his hand over the sky, the tip of his thumb and the tip of his little finger would extend from horizon to horizon. Now, what would happen if you looked up at the sky and you saw the massive hand of God totally filling the sky from horizon to horizon? That huge hand. Just picture it. How small would you feel? How big would God seem? That's the point that Isaiah wants us to see, that God is so unimaginably huge and powerful that just his hand, it fills the entire sky. And the text goes on. Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? And the imagery here is also captivating. Isaiah asks, you know, who's taken all the dust and the dirt of the earth and put it in a measuring cup? Now think about a measuring cup in your kitchen and home. What kind of power would it take? To take all the dirt on earth and jam it into that cup. Or how big would you have to be to be able to do that? Or who has taken all the mountains and hills of the earth and weighed them on a scale? Think about Mount Everest. Here's a picture of Mount Everest. What kind of power would it take to grab a hold of this mountain, lift it up, and put it on a scale? Now, I've driven to the East Coast a few times, also out west through the Rockies. And as you make those drives, you go through some pretty impressive mountains. And as you do so, not only do you get a, a sense of the, of the size and the scale of these incredible features, sometimes you come across long tunnels. Now, I have to confess, even as a grown man, I kind of get excited about these tunnels. They're kind of fun. I get a little giddy. Probably more so than the little kids in the back seat. I think they're just, they're just a good time. And... How long do you think, though, as you drive through these tunnels, how long do you think it took a group of people to carve out and build some of those tunnels? What will eventually be the world's longest transit tunnel is currently under construction today. It's called the Gothard Base Tunnel. It's located in the Swiss Alps. This is what it looks like today under construction. And when completed, this tunnel will be about 35 miles long. Construction of it began in 1996. It will be completed in 2016 to the cost of over $10 billion. Now, if it takes a massive group of people working for 20 years, 
spending billions of dollars just to carve a 35-mile tunnel. How small do you feel when you realize that God can just pick up that entire mountain and just put it on a scale like that in an instant without any strain or any difficulty? How immensely huge and awesome is God? And that is Isaiah's point with all this imagery. And it's the first main truth of this chapter, that God is absolutely supreme in every conceivable way. And Isaiah first describes this truth by focusing on God's power and might, by illustrating just how massively huge and all-powerful is God. And notice that he does so by focusing on all aspects of creation. He talks about the waters or the oceans. He talks about the heavens or the sky. He talks about the dust and the dirt, the earth itself. And his point is that there is not one iota of anything over which God is not supremely powerful. He is Lord over all of it. And he absolutely towers over everything in creation. Every mountain, every ocean, every plant, every animal, every person, every speck of dust. Nothing compares to matching his power and ability. Everything yields to the supremacy of God. And while verse 12 describes the supremacy of God's physical power, then the following verse, verse 13, begins to describe his mental supremacy. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And here we find a series of rhetorical questions. And Isaiah asks, you know, who advises God? Who's God talked to when he needs help? Who's he call up on the phone? Who's he turn to for advice? Who teaches God the things he needs to know about life and morality and righteousness and knowledge? Isaiah is essentially asking, who helped God understand all these things? And the answer is obvious, it's implied. No one. God is omniscient. He knows everything. And in fact, because God is omniscient, it's safe to say that God really doesn't learn anything from anyone. He doesn't learn anything ever. Period. You see, for you to learn something, you have to not know something. If you already know everything, how could you, how could you possibly learn something? When you have absolute, incorruptible, perfect knowledge, how could you add to it? How could you ever learn anything? You can't. To learn something, you must not first understand the thing that you're learning. But this is never the case with God. God is absolutely supreme in His knowledge. He is omniscient. And he knows every fact, every deed, every thought. God has memorized the content of every book ever written. He knows every word that every person has ever spoken. He could dictate to you perfectly the content of every email ever written, of which there are 294 billion emails written every day. And God knows exactly what they say before they are written. Do you know that God could tell you how many blades of grass have germinated on the earth since the dawn of time? Or how many atoms exist within your body? Or precisely how many rocks there are on Mars? And God has the highest degree possible in astronomy, biology, geology, sociology, psychology, physics, mathematics, chemistry, and quantum mechanics. And all those supposed experts of our world, people we revere for their intelligence and wisdom. And I don't care who you name, whether it be Albert Einstein or Steve Jobs. They are total idiots in comparison to God. Did I just commit heresy by calling Steve Jobs a total idiot? See, God is absolutely supreme in his knowledge. And this includes knowing with perfect precision how many times you or I have disappointed him. 
So truth number one of this passage, that God is absolutely supreme in every conceivable way, especially in his power and in his knowledge. But remember, I said this, two, this text has two truths and a surprise. So let's now look to the second truth. And here, to see this, we have to look at verse 6 and following. Verse 6 says, A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Twice here, people are referred to as withering grass. All flesh is grass. Surely people are grass. And also the value and the beauty of people is described as fading flowers. All of its beauty is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade. And Isaiah is using here simple agricultural images to describe the nature of mankind. And here's his point. That just as many things in the agricultural world, like flowers, don't last, so too is the destiny of mankind. Just as grasses and flowers lose their beauty and vibrancy over time, so too does man. I'm sure you've experienced this yourself, like men. When you go ahead and purchase a nice bouquet of flowers for that special woman in your life, those flowers are beautiful and lovely, wonderful, right? For a day or so. And then what inevitably happens? The beauty begins to fade. The petals begin to wilt. The leaves droop. And eventually the flower itself utterly begins to fall apart. And inevitably you wonder, why did I just spend 20 or 30 bucks on something that wouldn't last? Or for those of you who have lawns, you water the lawn, you fertilize it, you care for it. And for a time it looks great. But then the heat of the summer comes. And that nice green grass begins to fade. It begins to wither. And so many things in this world look beautiful for a time, but eventually their beauty fades. And this most certainly applies to people as well. Isaiah says that we are like flowers, like grass. You start out in life looking pretty good. And for a few years there in childhood or young adulthood, you see the the beauty of a person bloom. And they're like a wonderful flower opening. So that uh, uh, then as they mature, people really in their 20s, they represent mankind at at its physical peak and beauty. But no one stays in their 20s for very long. Soon the petals begin to droop and the beauty fades and time takes its toll and you start to get wrinkles and bags under your eyes and your energy wanes and your eyesight gets worse. Your hair turns gray. Things in your body don't work like they used to and some physical things were once easy become now more difficult and you begin to move more carefully. You begin to think less clearly. Sometimes you even begin to drive your car more slowly. Because all of human life withers and fades. And that is the point, the point that Isaiah makes in these verses. And the agricultural image here reminds me of that famous scene in the movie, Dead Poet Society. You've seen that? When Robin Williams, who's portraying a famous teacher, he, he tries to communicate to his students the brevity of life. And what he does is he takes them out into a hallway of the school and he shows them pictures of groups of students hanging there on the wall uh, who long preceded them 70, 80 years ago. And he says, see all those people there? They are now food for worms. Here they are in these pictures in the prime of life. The vibrancy of youth, the entire world is before them, but their beauty faded. And eventually their very lives too. And now they are merely food for worms. Listen closely. 
and you can hear their message to you. And then the movie sends chills up your spine as he whispers, Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. And I've looked at similar pictures myself. Here's one. It's a class photo from Yale University, approximately a century ago. And here's a group of young men who are in the prime of life. But there's one thing they all have in common. They are all now long dead. And I wonder, how significant must their lives seem here when this photo was taken? The whole world was before them. They were graduating from a prestigious Ivy League school. They were on top of the world. They felt invincible. Like life would never end. But now they're dead. And who remembers them? Who today cares about the things that undoubtedly took so much of their time and so much of their energy? Like the years they spent studying for their degree, or the promotions they received at work, or the money that they made, or the major home renovation project that took so much of their time, or the cool accomplishment that their hobby produced. Who is telling their story? What significance? How significant are they really? For the most part, they're lost to the annals of time. And friends, someday someone's going to hold up a picture of you and me and say the same thing. I wonder who this person was. I wonder what they did with their life. I wonder what they lived for. I wonder if they ever realized that someday I'd be looking at their picture and pondering if they ever thought that they would essentially be forgotten. All flesh is grass. Every person is like a flower who for a period of their life has a season of great beauty and then a long, slow, gradual decline. Here then gone. This is the nature of mankind on the earth. Here and gone. And this is the second major truth in this text, that first, God is absolutely supreme in every conceivable way, and the second, people are incredibly weak, fragile, and small. Life is brief. And so much of what we focus on, invest in, live for, it will simply be forgotten. And Isaiah makes this point As he makes this point in verse 8, notice the contrast, though, that he immediately presents. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. God is not like this. He endures. He lasts. He does not change. He does not fade. His beauty does not fail. And everything he does, everything he says, everything he promises, it happens. It lasts. It is never forgotten. God is a permanent, unchangeable reality. Everything else, it shifts and changes and comes and goes. But God is always God. He is the timeless constant in the universe. He is an immovable fortress, a rock of the ages, and an incomparable source of power and wisdom. And God does not, he cannot ever fade or diminish or decrease by any measure. He is forever and always ultimately supreme. And he rules and presides over all of creation, unchallenged and unmatched in all of his glory. And friends, that is God and that is not us. We do not. We are incredibly weak and fragile and small. And to quote the well-known song, we are all dust in the wind. 
And in this chapter, we see these two truths colliding in an epic contrast. And it is a contrast that Isaiah then continues and picks up in verse 22 and following when he says, It is he who sits upon the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and their tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. People of the earth here are described as grasshoppers. It is he who sits above a circle in the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Now, it's not a very flattering thing to be compared to a grasshopper, is it? Here's what one looks like. (laughs) Now, not only is a grasshopper very small, short-lived, and very weak in comparison to people, it is also very ugly. And certain species of grasshoppers can be very destructive. Locusts, for example, they're a type of grasshopper. And swarms of them cause great agony and suffering for farmers in the Middle East. And therefore, isn't it fitting that Isaiah continues this contrast by comparing people to a very harmful, annoying insect? How significant is one grasshopper, really? How much power or wisdom does one grasshopper have? How beautiful is it? And you and I, we're like that in comparison to God. Weak, fragile, small. And because of sin, very ugly. Corruptive, destructive to the things and the people around us. But notice who God is. He is pictured as reigning over earth from space. He sits above the circle of the earth. And that imagery alone is meant to convey how the size of man compared to that with God. You know, from the orbit of the earth, how large does a grasshopper seem? If you were up in the space station circling the earth right now trying to see a grasshopper, how easy would that be? How significant would that grasshopper seem? The text also then says in verse 23 that God brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. And then speaking of these rulers, he says, Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. And now here Isaiah describes really the most powerful people on earth. Rulers, Princes, kings, emperors, presidents. And he says, even the most powerful people in the world who command armies, who control nuclear arsenals, whose very words, they affect the the course of world events. These very, very powerful people are like nothing to God. They're like chaff or stubble in the wind. They're here for a very short while. They kind of just get going. They just get planted. They just start to grow. And then God merely blows. And they're gone. And even blowing, that's such a gentle action. Blowing, doing so, barely, barely begins to tap a person's potential or energy to impact something. Yet, that is all God has to do. He just blows. And the most powerful people on earth and, and the nations on earth are reduced to nothing. All it takes is a whisper from God. And the greatest tyrants, the most significant men, the most powerful military forces are turned to dust. And so these two powerful truths in this passage form a poignant contrast. That God is absolutely supreme in every conceivable way and that people are incredibly weak, fragile, and small. And this contrast should cause us to ask this question. Do we think ourselves rightly in 
in comparison to God? I think often we do not. Sure, we think of, we acknowledge some of God's power and such mentally, but we often think of him in such small and petty ways. We might mentally assent that he could, yeah, lift Mount Everest and place it on a scale. We know he could take all the water and put it in the palm of his hand. We know he could just, like, blow on the armies of the United States or Russia or North Korea and just kind of, they would disintegrate. We know those things. But somehow the reality of God's power and might is easily ignored. And it's ignored as we fail to have an adequate and holy fear of God. So we live in blatant rebellion against him. Engaging in sin with hardly a second thought because we don't feel the repercussions of it. But imagine if you were just a minuscule speck standing in the palm of God's hand. And you know that he could just close his fist and crush you in a moment without any effort at all. Wouldn't you be on your best behavior? Not wanting to offend him at all because he could just do that. We also ignore the supremacy of God and we tend to think that we know better. And rather than looking to the one who has perfect knowledge and clarity about what is best and most wise, we turn to our own wisdom and understanding to help us navigate life. And even when God's word is abundantly clear that we need to move in this direction, that we need to do this thing, we go the other way because we think that we know better. And thus we refuse to acknowledge how infinitely wise God is. You see, we often make God out to be far too small Because we consider ourselves to be much more powerful and much smarter than we really are. We tend to think, I can do that. I know what's right. And we live our lives as though we really believe what Ernest Hemingway famously wrote when he said, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. What tremendous heresy that is. Grasshoppers are masters of nothing. We would do well to spend time thinking about this great contrast and to get things into proper perspective. How often do you think of yourself as a grasshopper being viewed from space or merely dust in the wind? You live your life today, but soon it will be over. You'll be gone, possibly largely forgotten. We're all like grasshoppers compared to God and we ought to fear his power. And run from sin, never wanting to risk angering someone as powerful as he is. We ought never to think that we know better than him and to constantly instead turn to God's word for guidance and direction in life. And we ought to stand in constant awe of the glory and grandeur and wonder of just the size and scope and power of God. And this contrast between God and us might lead us to conclude that God would want nothing to do with us. We are like mere insects to him after all. What value could he possibly place in us? What an annoyance we must be to him. It seems impossible that this awesome, almighty, supreme, impressive God would ever turn his attention to creations who are so tiny and short-lived and frail and fragile and ignorant and powerless. You see, these two truths, they form a contrast that when left to their own, it would lead most to conclude, at best, some sort of deism. That God must be indifferent to the plights of people because they are so beneath him in every measurable category. And you know, personally, I don't give a lick about grasshoppers. So why should God care one bit about me?
I said at the onset of this message that this text contains two truths and a surprise. And now it's time for the surprise. And the surprise is this. That despite the vast chasm that exists between God and mankind, God does not treat us like the grasshoppers or the dust or the chaff that we are. Instead, he cares for us, away, for us in a way that is astounding and utterly surprising. Look at verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Here's a picture of God coming for his people. Remember the context in which Isaiah writes. The Jews in the southern kingdom have just witnessed the northern kingdom's defeat to the hand of Assyrians and soon the southern kingdom itself will be carried off into captivity. And so Isaiah here prophesies that God will rescue his people and that he will come to them in their hour of need. And notice the incredible way that he does so. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in in his arms. He will carry them on his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Isaiah pictures God coming not as a great king or an omnipotent power, but as a shepherd. And what could be more surprising? What could be more unexpected that this massive huge awesome towering gigantic god shrinks himself down to human scale taking the form of a shepherd a human shepherd and he no longer sees the inhabitants of the earth as earth as grasshoppers but as cherished sheep that he wants to care for and protect. And so he gathers each of those sheep one by one into his arms and presses them to his chest. This sounds a bit like something we just celebrated. That God in all of his power and wisdom and might compressed himself into the tiny body of a baby. And the same voice that spoke the universe into existence now cried out with an infant's cry. And the same hand that held all the waters of the world in its palm or stretched from horizon to horizon now reflexively wrapped itself around Mary's finger. What a captivating wonder that is. And here is the most amazing surprise. That despite the supreme and massive glory of God and the frail, weak, minuscule, and ugly nature of mankind, God still has an intimate care and concern for his people. And this care and concern is not something that we deserve. We're just grasshoppers. But thankfully, the God we serve is not just an almighty deity. He is a benevolent creator and a shepherd who cares deeply for his creation, even though he is so vastly superior to it. And so much does he treasure his sheep that he entered into their small, frail, weak, miserable world and became one of them. And he eventually declared, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life 
for the sheep. And that same breath that could turn nations and armies and rulers into dust would, through torture, struggle to breathe. And eventually that breath would cease as God died on the cross. This is the gospel. And it is a captivating wonder that will consume us for all of eternity. And it has made all the more captivating when you consider the immense contrast that Isaiah presents in this chapter. But the wonder does not stop merely with salvation. The supreme God has promised to make himself intimately present in the lives of his people and a constant help to them in their struggles. Look at verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall grow, shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Isaiah here writes to encourage anyone who is feeling burdened or defeated in life. He's writing to the Israelites, feeling their oppression and their suffering, or anyone else who's feeling the weak and fragile nature of the human condition or persecution from their enemies. And what he says is just as surprising as the previous comments. First, he acknowledges the limitless knowledge and supreme power of God. He says, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. See the emphasis on his power and his knowledge there? And then he reminds us about the fragility of mankind. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. Even the best of us in their prime of life have need. And then he states that the very power of God is available to those who trust him. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. They who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. So not only does God come down to earth to care for his people as a shepherd and compresses himself down in the form of Jesus, now he extends himself outward into the heart and the life of every believer And he personally helps them persevere through the trials and the hardships of life. Now let that truth sink in for a moment. That the same power that can take Mount Everest and just pick it up and put it on a scale, that power is made available to God's people. That the same wisdom that perfectly understands every mystery of the cosmos, that knowledge is shared with God's people. Not granted, this wisdom and knowledge is not shared, uh, it is shared in moderation. God does, doesn't grant people supernatural powers. There are still mysteries and truths he has yet to reveal to us. But the advantage of being God's people is clear that this almighty, supreme, all-powerful, all-knowing, absolutely huge and sovereign God, he cares for his people in a very intimate and loving way. And he sustains them through any trial or any adversity that they might face. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like a source of power and of wisdom that I would be foolish not to avail myself of. So there you have it. 
We've examined the full scope of Isaiah chapter 40. And what relevance does this passage have for our lives? How do we change in light of what we've seen here this morning? I want to share with you briefly four important applications from this passage. The first, this. Cultivate a right perspective of God's greatness and your smallness. Don't forget the massive chasm that exists between God and yourself in regards to his ability and knowledge and power and your fragility and your weakness. Keep that in perspective. Spend time dwelling on God's glories and lots of time acknowledging your immense shortcomings and fragilities. Remember how big he is and how very small you are, oh little grasshopper. Two, pursue righteousness by having a healthy fear of God's immense power. Remember that God could end your life at any moment. And that your every breath that happens only at the mercy of God, who, by the way, hates sin. So flee from sin and strive to please him because you want to avoid his punishment. You want to avoid ramifications that could come because he could and he does bring death to people at any moment with no effort at all. Point three. Turn to God's word as your source of wisdom and guidance in life. Not self-help books or your own creative thinking. God's wisdom through reading his word and discerned through prayer and the Holy Spirit. We need to seek that and to prioritize that voice over any other voice in our lives. So often we see it and we hear it, but we go the other way because another voice is more enticing. We need to be captivated by the one voice which really knows everything and follow that without exception. And four, trust in the power of God to help you through adversity. 2012 will bring some very difficult trials for some of you. And as you face those challenges, will you depend on your friends, your family, or your doctors, or yourself? Or will you turn to God and say, I am weary Lift me up. Help me endure this in a way that only you can. And I don't know about you, but heading into a new year, these things seem like a pretty good list of things that we could work on, that you could work on this year, doesn't it? And I think God would be richly pleased with our lives and with our church if we, in the coming year, more greatly appreciated His greatness and better acknowledged our smallness. If we pursued with greater fervor righteousness and holiness with more resolve for purity and integrity in life. If we become better students of God's word and actually listen to the voice of God rather than our own. If we leaned on God as our source of strength amid adversity. And if we said daily, Jesus, I trust in you to help lift my weary soul. And let us always stand in wonder of this all. May these truths never become routine. May we always be captivated by this most amazing wonder. And may these truths produce within us a wellspring of joy and worship as we realize how unworthy we are of Him, but how very much He cherishes 
each and every one of us. This is a wonder we should never get over. It should always captivate us. And it will for all eternity. Let's pray.